Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Jeremy Lenoki. Say hi. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad, man. Good. So I had the first privilege of meeting you. I think it was probably at Lane's VIP camp, I think, in person. I think it was the first time I met you there. Um, but obviously followed your stuff for quite a while. And you've done a lot of work on blood flow restriction, which is what we'll talk about today. And I actually have a confession with that, that when I was doing my PhD, I wrote a couple uh, very crude uh, reviews on that. And my initial thought on it years ago was, I don't know, this seems like the dumbest idea I've <laughs> ever heard of. And then I kept reading more research and more research. And I'm like, huh, the research isn't matching what I thought. And then over time, like even within the last couple of years, I've actually, a lot of it's due to your work too, is that it actually changed my mind. I'm like, huh, this actually can be a pretty useful tool. So um, before we get into that, do you want to give your little background and bio on yourself there? Uh, sure. Uh, my, my last name is actually Winnicky, but it's extremely... Oh, it I'm makes sorry. Sense. I screwed that oh. up. Yeah, oh. I know you forever and I mispronounced your last name. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, it's it's always interesting to see the pronunciations because it doesn't look like it doesn't sound like it should. It's probably why uh, I misspell it all the time too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we did meet a few years ago at, at Lane's camp. Um, it's always a, a good time to go to those. Um, but yeah, I, I started off um, at Southeast Missouri State. That's where I did my undergrad. Uh, then I went to Illinois for an internship, spent some time there. That's really where I, I started to learn how to do some science things. I uh, worked with Dr. Kim Huey there, um, doing some animal research. Um, so that was that was really a, a good experience. Um, then I went back to Southeast for my master's in nutrition uh, and exercise science, where I worked with Dr. Joe Pugel, Jeremy Barnes, uh, some other good guys there. That was um, uh, a really uh, good time as well. That's really where I, in Illinois, before I went back to Southeast, that's where I kind of came across blood flow restriction. You know, I think people have heard the story several times. Um, but so kind of a couple people were doing it in the gym. Lane was one of them. Uh, was kind of telling me about it. Um, and I, I thought just as you did, that it didn't sound like it made a lot of sense to me, um, that you could do that and that would make, uh, anything positive occur. So I did, I started doing some reading on that and that's where I kind of, that was around 2007, 2008. Uh, that's when I started to really kind of dive into the research a little bit and then went back to Southeast for my master's and started doing some of the practical stuff behind that. Um, and then went to Oklahoma and we did some more blood flow restriction stuff. Um, Oklahoma, I work with Dr. Mike Benben. Um, and that's really where, uh, we started doing a lot of the methodological and safety stuff on blood flow restriction. Um, and it was a good experience there because I got to work with some of my best friends, uh, Chris and Wendy, who I met at Illinois earlier, um, and then came in with Rob Dibod, um, and, you know, several other people. So that was a, it's really been a really, it was a really good learning environment there. Also met Dr. Takashi Abe, who's obviously a legend in the field. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, graduated from University of Oklahoma in 2014, uh, took a job at the University of Mississippi as assistant professor. Uh, and this is, I guess, my third year here. So we've been doing a lot of the same things, uh, some, some blood flow restriction things, but uh, a lot of just alter alternative ways to, to lift weights uh, other than the, you know, the dogmatic high-low training. Um, but we focus on uh, several different things, but skeletal muscle is our, is our main thing. Um, but we do do a lot of blood flow restriction. Um, and here I've been really lucky as well to work with really good people, really good students. So I'm very, very happy here for sure. Cool. That's awesome. And a little bit of a side rant or question, but do you also teach down there in addition to research? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I do uh, a little bit of teaching. Um, I'm lucky that I can primarily teach. Uh, I just teach a couple of grad classes. Oh, so nice. um, it's it's it, it's pretty good because the, the grad program here is pretty solid. So the students in there are pretty high caliber. So you can actually have some interaction, have just uh, ask a lot of questions and have some pretty good discussions. So um, it, it's good, man, just talking science all day. So it's been it's been good. Yeah, that's awesome. And for people listening who are like, well, I don't know, blood flow restriction, what the heck is that? Um, can you give them a little background of how you would explain it so they have an idea what we're talking about? Yeah, so um, the we traditionally think of 
you know, if you read any position stand or any textbook, you know, you're going to read that high load training is the only way to do anything positive with muscle size and strength. And what exactly is high load training for people who may so, not be familiar yeah, with training, uh, training at a very high percentage of your max. So if you're, if the most that you can lift is a hundred pounds, you know, most people are going to tell you, um, you know, if you train about, you need to train about 60, 70, 80 pounds to, you know, repeatedly to see a muscle adaptation. Um, and if you do that, you will certainly see muscle adaptation. That's true. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of data that with low loads, meaning 20, 30 pounds, so 20 and 30% of your max, um, that muscle size and strength can increase uh, in combination with blood flow restriction or just if you train to failure anyway. Um, but blood flow restriction is we basically apply a cuff or a wrap or some, some type of device around the limb. Um, we're just applying a little bit of pressure. So what we do is we, we change the amount of blood flow going into the limb and the amount of blood flow leaving the limb. So you have some type of pooling effect. Um, and it essentially makes the muscle work a lot harder than it normally would. Um, and it's been shown to produce increases in muscle size and strength similar to that of high-low training. Um, so it's never superior to high-low training. Uh, but I don't know why anyone would ever expect that it would be. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can only adapt so much. Um, but it does seem to have a favorable impact on skeletal muscle. There's some suggestion that maybe it might also have an impact on bone, but that's a, we need a lot more data to really say that with any amount of confidence. Um, but this has been observed in uh, several different populations, you know, so trained, untrained, older, younger, injured, rehabilitation. And that's where it might have its biggest impact, to be honest, um, in the rehabilitation scene. And there's a lot of teams, a lot of sports teams, you know, NFL, NBA, you know, that are that are starting to implement this uh, utility to in their rehabilitation and just in their everyday training program. So it's really starting to kind of become very popular in the United States. Yeah, and speaking of popular, I even saw you were on uh, SportsIllustrated.com had a nice article there about it too. So, congrats yeah. there. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, it's been picked up by ESPN and a lot of other uh, kind of main uh, big sport uh, outlet companies, um, and, and a lot of that's been spearheaded by Johnny Owens. Um, I've done a little bit of I presented with him this past year at uh, ACSM. Um, he's a uh, uh, physical therapist. Um, I think he actually has his own company now. Um, but he's he's done a, he did a lot of work with you know soldiers in the military, and he's been implementing it. You know, he's been doing a lot of the work and the you know talking to the NFL, talking to the NBA about how it might be beneficial uh, for them. But he's done a lot of stuff with some of the injured uh, injured, injured soldiers uh, and, and saw a lot of success. So we've been kind of talking back and forth for probably I guess going on four or five years now. Yeah, I think he did some of the, if I remember right, early safety study on that too, didn't he? Uh, I don't think he did, no. Okay, maybe it was someone else. but it's a practitioner, yeah. Yeah, I saw, I'm trying to remember the guy's name at ACSM years ago, and it was like he was the only talk there on blood flow restriction at the time. I'm like, this is so stupid. And yeah. I go to the talk, and I think it was, I'll remember his name, but it was one of the, the first more safety studies actually sure. done on it. And I was like, oh, hmm, maybe there's something to it. At least we know it's generally safe. Um, yeah. So that was like the first time I was like, oh, maybe I'm completely wrong on this. Maybe it's okay. <laughs> yeah. If it's an American guy, um, it could be, uh, it's probably Todd Manini or, or Brian Clark. Um, uh, Brian done... Clark. I've been pretty yeah. sure that's it's... who it was, yeah. They've done some good stuff on blood flow restriction. But yeah, no, I think that that's a reasonable response. And I think that any viewer um, kind of hearing about blood flow restriction for the first time, you know, I always say, like, your, your first question should be, is that a safe thing to be doing? <laughs> we're, we're restricting blood flow. We're not, you know, keep in mind, blood flow is still going up during exercise, but it's being attenuated. So it, um, it, it, it doesn't go below baseline during exercise. We have that data. Um, but you know, your, your first question should be, is that safe? No, that's totally reasonable. And I always get, it's always interesting to see because a lot of people are on board with blood flow restriction now. So when someone who's not familiar with it raises the question, is this safe? They usually get almost destroyed online. Oh, no. I, I, 
And I'm sure you've seen that too, Mike. And yeah. I, I never understand that. I'm like, they're like, of course it's safe. It's like, well, that's a really a kind of a reasonable question to ask. Yeah. Um, my mind. It's like the first um, thing you yeah. want to know, right? Do no harm. <laughs> yeah. And it does, but it does seem like it, it is um, safe and effective. So if it, if it was just effective, but not safe, that would be a problem. But for most people, it does seem like it responds very similarly to, you know, the safety profile of what you would expect with traditional exercise. Is there any group or populations that would be kind of contraindicated or not recommended in? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, we, we always screen out people who are at risk for thromboembolism, meaning blood clotting. Um, not to say that it's ever uh, uh, happened above the, you know, we've never seen it in our lab, thankfully. But, you know, blood clotting is something that just happens in general. Um, but when we restrict blood flow, we uh, don't want to do it on someone who's at an elevated risk. So people who've had a past history of that, you know, maybe they just had surgery. Um, you know, although it has been used favorably in that situation, you know, but for research, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we usually try to be overly cautious because I'm not a therapist. I'm not a physician. So, um, but, you know, just in general, I think if you, if you've had lymph nodes removed on a, on a limb, you know, sometimes they don't let you take blood pressure on that side. So if you had lymph nodes removed, they don't let you take blood pressure on that arm, um, because of the lymph, the fear of lymphedema. Mm. So, um, that would be a situation where perhaps, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. There's no da again. There's no data that shows that, but right, it's theoretical. Nothing wrong with being cautious, um, but so that would be a, a situation. Um, you know, so maybe if you're at a higher risk for thromboembolism, I wouldn't do it. If you've you know had lymph nodes removed, maybe you maybe don't do it. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. You know. Pregnancy. I mean, just because. <laughs> I don't want to be. You know, who knows? I mean, pregnancy and exercise is is something that's it's a very interesting topic. Um, well, who's going to do the testing, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. How do you split? Oh, I'm going to be in the the pregnant group and see what possibly may happen. Uh, good luck with that. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know the the, it, the recommendations for that for exercise and pregnancy in general are, are tough because. A lot of people are going to criticize it because they're overly cautious, um, and, and I get that, you know. Um, but you know, that's a population where you might want to be a little bit overly yeah, cautious. About you probably want to be. <laughs> I agree. Gotcha. Um, so you'd mentioned comparison to high-low training. So if if someone is thinking about, ah, I, I heard these these two goons talk about this on a podcast. Um, how would they? what would you think a blood flow restriction would be best for in terms of, would you just add it to a program? Would you put it on its own day? Kind of from a practical standpoint, how would you put it into somebody's program? Yeah. I mean, you could really do it however you want, uh, or you, you know, don't have to do it, but if you wanted to do it, um, you know, one of the things that you could do is, you know, you could, um, the first option would be just have it its own day. So maybe if you train in a muscle group two times a week or three times a week, uh, maybe two times a week you do it with blood flow restriction, kind of remove some of the load, um, and the other time you train more traditionally. Or you just train traditionally as you normally would, but if you have a tweak or you still have some type of injury where you can't lift a heavy load, maybe that's when a time where you might implement it, right? Um, or if you go to the gym and you're, plan you're planning to do a heavy uh, workout and you just don't mentally have it that day. Um, you know, I know people who just start lifting weights, um, or people who are very hardcore, they never have those type of days, but, but the <laughs> out there, much like myself, you know, some days you don't feel like lifting heavy. Maybe there's, maybe that's a situation where, Hey, maybe, maybe I'll do some blood flow restriction with lower loads and, you know, te uh, you know, stress the muscle, um, but not necessarily put myself in a, in a lot of harm. You know, there's, um, not that you should ever have a lack of focus when lifting weights, but I think we can all agree that lifting 20 and 30% of your max doesn't require as much focus mm -hmm. and concentration as lifting at a near max or lifting at 70, 80, 90% of your max. Uh, at least to me. Um, but, um, you know, it, again, if you're, if you're a hardcore person, um, you know, I'm sure you don't have those days, but that would be a situation <laughs> where you might be able to implement it. Yeah. I 
did mention that too. And one thing I've used it in my own programming, and I have used it on a, a few clients. They were more on the physique base, and they had experience with it before too. So it made it pretty easy to add to their routine. Um, but on those days where you know I measure like heart rate variability in the morning to get some status of autonomic nervous system, you just feel kind of blah. I find that I can add it in, still get some good mechanical work, and it doesn't appear to negatively affect my nervous system, which gets into a whole subtopic of CNS fatigue with my little air quotes and all that kind of stuff here. Um, but have you found that there's less of a, I guess, sort of demand on the nervous system per se doing it as compared to standard training? You know, I'm not really sure, um, to be honest. Um, I, I don't really... I haven't seen up. anything on it when trying to design a study on that is a pain too. So, yeah. Um, on the whole CNS fatigue thing. Um, but, um, with respect to at the muscle level, you know, there doesn't appear to be a big damaging response. If it is occurring, it, it seems to be pretty small. Um, so that would allow you to train a little bit more frequently with it. Um, now I, I will say if you are a power lifter and you want to be lifting, uh, and you want to be the best at lifting heavy weights, right? Then doing blood flow restriction only with low loads is not your best bet, right? Because lifting uh, uh, very heavy is a skill that you will not get um, at training at 20 or 30% of your max. You will get stronger in the 1RM, but not nearly as strong as you would if you were practicing lifting heavy. So sometimes I get that, you know, I, I see these comments where, you know, Show me one powerlifter training like this. Um, well, that's a good <laughs> point. Yeah, if the powerlifter was only lifting light weights, and then the, their their competition is who can lift the most uh, heavy weights, then yeah, that's a poor strategy. I agree um, to only do that, but I don't think that it, you know anyone is recommending that powerlifters only lift twenty and thirty percent of your max. Yeah, and that goes back to the said principle, right? So specific adaptation to impose demand that it's it's still true, right? If you want to get better at, like you said, whatever it is you're doing, Olympic lifting, CrossFit, powerlifting, swimming, running, yeah, you should probably do that thing, you know? <laughs> right. right, right. But, you know, again, to get back to the <coughs> yeah, the, the other point, you know, there, just to kind of follow up on it, the muscle within a session will only respond so much. So if you've done, if you, you know, if, you, if you've done multiple sets of exercise on a, on a muscle group, um, adding blood flow restriction on top of that, you know, might not do a whole lot. Do you get what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. the muscle isn't going to infinitely respond. Um, so that's something important to keep in mind. So if you've done multiple exercises for a body part, you know, then you're going to end, end the workout with blood flow restriction. I don't know that you're getting a whole lot out of that um, as far as the muscle size or, 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 or the strain. I think the muscle has already responded as much as it's going to. Um, so I think that if you're going to use it, that's why I often would just replace it. If you're not, if you're not going to, you're going to do blood flow restriction that day, then just do blood flow restriction and go home. Um, don't, you know, um, do all your high low training and then add blood flow restriction on top of that you're you're just adding to the stress yeah i'm also wondering in that, in that case scenario too are you pulling the body in two different directions a little bit with different types of stressors too right not not to the extent of an interference effect but mm, like you said the, the muscle can only adapt to so much and are you maybe making it a little bit worse because you're asking it to adapt to something slightly different? Or do you think that the stimulus is close enough that it's just more, eh, it's close enough, but you know, you're not going to infinitely adapt as much with just more and more work all the time. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I, I would, I, I don't know that it would be pointing in two different directions. I think um, what you would be doing is you're just, uh, if your goal is to maximize the muscle response that day, I feel like all you're doing at that point is it's already been maximized um, that all you're doing is delaying your recovery. You're just delaying your time that you can train again. Um, so that that would be where I would be more have more of a concern. So you know, if if most people want to try to get as much, as most out of the muscle they can, then they want to you know maybe train a little bit more frequently. Well, if you've added more and more stress, that you're not getting anything more out of the adaptation, that you're just delaying recovery. 
probably not a good thing. I don't know. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. So in my brain, I always think about how much work does an athlete or someone need to do to get a certain percentage of the positive adaptation we want, whether it's strength or hypertrophy, things of that nature, versus going beyond that, where now, yeah, you may have went from you get 95% to maybe 97% of that, but you built up all this fatigue that's going to take you maybe another 24 or 12 hours, 36 hours to recover from, right? So did you really, is that worth it for that 2%, right? This is all hypothetical. Sure. Yeah, I'd say for most people, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that, that's one thing I found with it too, um, is just adding it as an extra day. So if someone was normally training three or four days a week, I may add it into their program just completely on a separate day. Or like I said, it'll be a drop down. So if you're going to do a heavy upper body day and you don't feel it's there or your whatever markers you use are off, then just drop and do a blood flow restriction day and call it good. What are your right. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, that's one way. I, I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, it just doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, I, I think if, you know, for a while I was running it, um, when I, when I was training a lot more frequently, I was, I would run a normal upper body day and then I would follow with lower body blood flow restriction mm -hmm. and then I'd come back and I would just flip it. Um, and I would do a normal lower body day followed by upper body blood flow restriction. Now I, I kind of ran that for a while with a little bit of success. Um, but I think there, I think there's countless ways to, to do it, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's not that complicated. Um, you know, if you want to have a muscle get bigger, um, you know, you, you can stress it either with high lows or you can stress it with low lows and blood flow restriction. But just realize that, you know, doing more and more and more doesn't give you more and more and more of, of adaptation. Um, so, you know, sometimes I think, you know, having a day where you, where you do that, that makes sense. Or if you have a day where you just replace it, that also makes sense. Or if you just don't ever want to do it, that also makes sense. Yeah, which is what I like about your approach, too, because a lot of people get stuck in one area and they're like, everyone must do this. It's like, well, yeah, but for what reason are you trying to do it for, right? It's all different tools, so, yeah. Exactly. No, I um, I don't make any money off of this. I'm just interested in the, the, the research question. It, it's a very fascinating question to me. It's a very fascinating technique. But I don't. It doesn't make any difference if everybody does it or nobody does it. I do think it could be very beneficial, right? But there's other things that are also beneficial. But it is one tool. And what I don't want to see happen, I don't want to see it where it gets to a point where it turns into like everything else in our in the industry, where it becomes a cure all at least for. <laughs> and then you know nothing can ever live up to it being a cure all. So you know people, it'll it'll you know reach some success for a few years and then people will say, well, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And it, of course it doesn't, it doesn't solve everything. <laughs> um, it's just a tool like everything else. Yeah. I think it was Alan Cosgrove who said years ago that the fitness industry is very prone to over and under reaction, right? So stuff goes from, wow, that's the stupidest looking thing ever to, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. And then, no, that was stupid. What are you doing that for? That was two years ago, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And it's, you know, at the same time, you know, I think both sides can learn a lot from each other, but I think that it just has to have honest conversation um, between the industry and, you know, um, science, etc. Yeah. So if someone is going to do, let's say, I'll have you give an example of an upper body and maybe a lower body uh, type blood flow restriction session, what are some some good ones they can, they can start with? Yeah, I mean, it seems like... Um, you can, you can probably apply this with most everything, you know, um, for example, for upper body, bicep curl, um, chest press. Now that the chest press brings up an interesting point because, um, for the listeners paying, still paying attention, still awake, uh, <laughs> they're going to realize that the chest is not actually under blood flow restrictions. So how could that possibly be working? Um, and that's actually a great question that, that I don't have an answer for, um, other than, you know, one, I'll say that there is some data showing that that is beneficial, that it, you know, there's, there's about probably four or five studies showing that, um, that it can augment muscles, muscle growth and strength of the chest. Hmm. Um, 
you know, despite the chest not being under blood flow restriction. And what might be happening, I don't know, don't, you know, um, but it could be that the triceps are fatiguing, um, and it's picking uh, the, trying to pick up the load. I, I, that's, that's one thing that, you know, has been hypothesized. Um, but <clears throat> so you can do the chest press with it. Um, the same concept would work with the lat pull down, um, or some type of dumbbell row, you know, um, but again, I've, I've actually, I've only seen one abstract on that. So I've never seen anything published showing anything positive with the back. Um, but you know, you could do uh, shoulder press, um, working under the same concept. So it, a lot of the upper body is a little bit tricky because a lot of the things that we train are part of the trunk and not the arms. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's something that we're moving more towards, um, in, in our, in our lab is kind of looking at the muscles, not under, uh, blood flow restriction, but they're still seen appear to see some benefit. Um, so the upper body is a little bit tricky and I, and in all honesty, it's very hypothetical from, for most of the body parts. But if I was going to do something for the shoulders, I probably wouldn't do blood flow restriction with a lat, with a lateral raise. I would do a shoulder press. I would do some pressing movements to where if it is working under the fatigue principle, then the triceps would be fatigued, et cetera. Yep. You get, uh, but again, you know, it's, that's largely hypothetical in everybody. It's very hard to, you're not going to be able to restrict blood flow to the trunk, but I will say that there is some data that showing that shows that it is beneficial with some with certain muscle groups. For the lower body, it becomes a little bit easier because you can actually directly restrict blood flow. Um, and obviously, for the upper body, you know, bicep curls and tricep extensions have been shown to be beneficial. Uh, those are obviously under direct blood flow restriction. Um, but I guess to, to follow up the just to kind of end the point in the upper body, one thing that you could do, especially if you become more um, uh, a little bit more advanced is you could just um, kind of maybe superset it. So maybe do a tricep extensions with a chest press. You know, if they're kind of, if it is working under that mechanism, you know, maybe that would be kind of help it out. Uh, but again, largely, largely hypothetical on the upper body for sure. In um, um, the lower body, you know, you could do it with squats. Um, I would tend to just side on knee extensions. Uh, so leg, leg extensions and leg curls, calf raises, but again, the only two places that you're putting the cuff is at the very top of the arm and the very top of the leg. Yeah, so, that was my next question. Yeah, for the lower body, you can do calf raises. I don't see any need to move the cuff down to the knee, um, mostly because there's not as much tissue there. So we don't want to cut off blood flow completely. Um, that seems like that's where things might, if there's going to be something bad happen, it would probably happen um, at you know, complete arterial occlusion, um, meaning that there is no blood flow, but that's not what we want. Um, so, you know, I don't see any reason why you just can't restrict blood flow at the top of the leg. It's going to modulate blood flow to the lower limb. Um, but you could do basically any exercise for the lower body, but, you know, again, squats, leg extensions, leg curls, and that and calf raises. I mean, that's uh, probably a, about as complex as you need to get to cover the lower body. Gotcha. And we'll um, come back to some sets and reps questions. But before that, for people listening, how would they so they said, oh, okay, I listen to these guys. I'm going to try it out. What sort of practical recommendations do you have? And then where exactly would they apply it? And about how tight would they need it to be? Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's, that's an interesting question. And I, I know there's a lot of people selling some things now. Um, and I saw some of them on Facebook the other day. I was like, Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, um, how good, I mean, they, I'm sure that they're fine. You know, the one thing that I will say is that we've tested a lot of different, you know, inflation devices. Um, and we've used, uh, we use several of the most popular, um, there's nothing special about any one of them. You know, it, what really seems to be important is the size of the cup. Um, and how important and, and how much restriction you're applying. Um, so when you look at how to do that practically, obviously one of the things that you're not going to be able to know um, is probably how much restriction you're actually causing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's obviously a, a limitation. The one thing that you can do, you know, I use, if I was going to do it, I would just use knee wraps. Um, I don't use anything really fancy. And for the upper body, I just cut them down the middle. So I want it to be a little bit more narrower. Um, and I just apply it to the top of my arm or the top of my leg. 
uh, and I, we have, a, uh, I think we've talked or written about that several times. Uh, but with uh, uh, how tight, you know, I, I think we can all generally have an idea of whether or not something is super, super tight or not really tight at all. And you just need to be in the middle of that. So you should see some type of, you should feel some type of fluid shift, but you should still have a pulse, right? So if, you're, <laughs> so if you apply it to your upper arm, right, and you and you feel down at your wrist and you don't have a pulse in that limb, uh, then that's arterial occlusion, and, and we don't want that. Um, to be honest, I like to use repetitions as kind of a guide for how much blood flow we're actually restricting. So if you're not even getting close to 30 reps, you know, using, you know, um, a reasonable pace, you know, not, not a super rapid contraction pace, but, you know, maybe one second and one and a half seconds up and one and a half seconds down or whatever, um, or one second, it doesn't matter. But if you can't even get close to 30 reps, um, you're probably have them on way too tight. Or if you apply them and you're in a severe pain before you even start exercise, Ooh. it's probably way too tight. You know, you, you should feel, it's not going to necessarily feel, um, the greatest, but you shouldn't be in, in pain. You know, it may feel a little uncomfortable, but not pain. There's a difference. And I think people um, uh, who are honest with themselves can tell the difference. Um, but again, if you can't do enough work to get 30 reps or even just even remotely close to that, you know, 25, 30 on the first set, you probably need to lighten the, the reps a little bit. Does that make sense? So, yeah. And you're saying well, you can't do it because you just you get loss of sensation, too much yeah. fluid shift, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, so I like to use repetitions as, as somewhat of a guide for how much, you know, blood flow is going to determine you know, at least your ability to do some, some work. Um, so I like to use, I can use that. I like to use that as somewhat of a guide. Um, obviously, uh, on the next three sets, you know, you're, it's going to, you're not going to be getting 30 reps would be my guess. Uh, but I like to use that as somewhat of a, as a guide is that, um, one, does it feel, are you in severe pain before you start? If you do, it's probably too tight, right? Do you, do you have it? Um, and you have somewhat of a fluid shift, um, and you're able to get close to 30 reps, you know, you're not getting 40 reps, you're getting around 30, 25, 30, then you're probably good. Right. Um, the, the important thing to keep in mind is, is that we're restricting blood flow for a few minutes. We're not restricting blood flow for hours, right? That's where that's where people have a disconnect with this because you know the the idea is well, blood flow is good. Well, of course it is. You know, blood flow <laughs> blood, blood flow is increasing to the limb during exercise, right? We're not reducing it below baseline, um, but you know we're restricting blood flow for minutes, not hours. Yeah, yeah, I agree. If you're if you have um, a loss of blood flow, um, or even attenuating it for hours to days, that would be a big problem for sure. But that's not what we're doing here. Um, so I think that's an important caveat that I probably should have said it a little bit earlier. Um, but th those are things that I would kind of use as a guide, you know, because the, the goal is to get the muscle bigger and stronger. The goal is not to be in as much pain as possible. But yeah. understanding that as the exercise goes on, it probably will become uncomfortable oh yeah that, that probably will happen but that's not necessarily the goal we're not trying to sometimes people send me um things and that you know where they're like you know this is the most painful thing ever but they're like it's kind of a weird kind of like they're they're excited about it. yeah <laughs> uh, that's interesting to me uh, <laughs> whatever you're into it that's that that's cool yeah but, um i think that just keep in mind that it doesn't like you may have them on too tight. If you, if you don't, eh, I don't know. That's that's completely different. But um, it just needs to be moderate restriction because what we find is at thirty percent of your max, you know, increasing the pressure a lot doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, you know, if you go really, really, really low loads, it might. But for what people are, what most people are doing around thirty percent of their max, it doesn't. Higher pressure doesn't necessarily augment it that much. Nice. And the other part I mentioned too is that it's just easy to do, right? So, for example, if you're pressing for simple math, 100 pounds, you know, you're literally only using 30 pounds, right? So, for even people who are you know, relatively strong overhead pressing, you know, not super strong, but you know, moderately strong, 
it's usually almost an empty bar, you know, or just a couple little weights on the end when you go down to 30%. So I found that you don't need to do much of a, a warm up either, you know, so you can just kind of walk in, put them on and just start doing it too. So from a, a time perspective, like the amount of time you spend is significantly less too. That's a good point. And I think that if you do this, you know, you do one exercise, I think you're going to realize that you're probably almost maximize that muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe two, you're going to be pretty much done would be my guess. Uh, but one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is a good point is that you don't, the, the key is not to use heavy weight with this. Yeah. If you, there, there's no evidence whatsoever that adding blood flow restriction with high loads does anything positive, you know, anything more than just doing the high load. Right. So, um, if you're going to use this technique, then use low load. That's the whole point. If you want to lift high loads and lift high loads, the point is to lift light with this technique. Yeah. And so one of my go-to ones I've used too, is like you mentioned bicep curls and military press. A lot of people, okay, put the, you know, bands on, you know, make sure they're not too tight. And then for a lot of people, even for guys, it's, you know, grab an empty bar um do presses 30 reps rest maybe just a little bit and then do 30 curls rest a little bit and then i got this from your uh, nsca journal one too just dropping to 15 reps then and you know three to four sets there total maybe and you're done you know it's 15 minutes at the very most even if you're resting a fair amount between it so it's not much time right no i i agree it's very uh, time efficient for especially how you're going to feel when you get done. Yeah. And I've noticed, like I said, it doesn't seem to be too taxing. The other part that I found was surprising is more of a cardiovascular response than I thought. Like my heart rate would go up relatively high. Um, I assume that's because of the, the changes in the fluid movement. Yeah. So you're, we're shifting venous return. So, um, you know, that's going to change stroke volume. So to maintain exercise, your heart rate's going to elevate much more than it, it would normally. Um, so there, there is a cardiovascular response with this. Um, and, you know, there has been some stuff written about that. We've done some cardiovascular testing with it. Um, it does increase, you know, blood pressure. I mean, the blood pressure is going to be elevated um, over, a, a, you know, a load match control. Um I think that makes sense to probably almost everyone mm-hmm. that if you're doing something that's going to produce a robust stimulus, you're going to have um, a cardiovascular response. Um, it, it is much less than what you were going to see with traditional training, or it certainly isn't going to be more. Um, you know, high low, I mean, if you think about those um, Google studies from back in the day, I mean, those, the blood pressure response there, albeit those were indwelling catheters, were astronomical. Um, so I, I feel like we're probably not going to see blood pressure responses on that level. Um, but regardless, you know, when you compare it to high low training, it's not, it's not the cardiovascular response isn't greater than that. Um, and it, it's something that comes back to baseline within, you know, five minutes of deflating the cuff. Um, so there is an augmented cardiovascular response, certainly, but certainly over just doing low, lower loads without blood flow restriction. I don't think there's any questions about that. Um, you're obviously going to have that when you restrict blood flow, but you know, it's not something that's higher than traditional exercise and it's not something that stays elevated post exercise. Um, and I, I think that's an important thing to, to mention. Yeah. It's also when I started doing a few clients too, they reported back that they felt like the world's biggest pussy because <laughs> they were using almost no load and they felt like they were horrible at doing it because their heart rate went sky high. So they had to explain what was going on there. <laughs> yeah, there is a, even, even without exercise, just re- applying the cuffs, inflating and deflating. It's a pretty decent cardiovascular response, certainly. And with that, is, that is, is there any change, there any change in, in like a robot type, type muscle level since you are maybe becoming becoming more hypoxic at that point or maybe you're not really becoming that hypoxic depending upon it yeah i'm not not sure about the hypoxic thing to be honest um there is some suggestion that the aerobic capacity does elevate under certain circumstances with blood flow restriction um uh, i'm not all that convinced that it's very large if it does occur yeah Uh, at least at this moment it could be um but from what i've seen uh I, I think it's more 
similar to resistance exercise in that it's not going to elevate it that much unless you have a really um, um, depleted level of, of aerobic capacity, a really low baseline. But um, it, it, it could, and there is, don't get me wrong, there are some studies that show a significant increase, but I don't know how big that magnitude really is, to be honest. Um, I think if you were going to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it if your whole sole goal is only aerobic capacity and you want to try to get it as high as possible, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is the best option. Um, but it may be an option that may, may help. I just don't know how large that change would actually be, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I gotcha. And so is it mostly the theory of accumulating sort of metabolic waste products in terms of the hypertrophy, so enhancing the muscle locally? Is that the primary mechanism with blood flow restriction? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, we, that's we what kind was of proposed early on, but I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm sold on that, I guess. Well, I, I think it might have something to do. I think the, I think the metabolites might be fatiguing, uh, which might, you know, help with recruitment and all that jazz to help recruit those higher threshold motor units. But we used to think, and we, we've written a couple papers on it that, um, that pulling these metabolites in itself was anabolic, meaning that um, not only do they may contribute to fiber type recruitment, but they also are anabolic in and of themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. We thought that, and there's some there's some data that was released that made us think that, and um, we we tried to test that, and I just don't know that that's true, to be honest. Um, it, it's a nice. It's a nice thing to keep repeatedly saying, Sounds but nice. <laughs> yeah, adding the metabolites on top of that would be, would, you know, somewhat be anabolic by themselves. I just don't know that they actually are. Um, so my, my view on that is kind of changing. Um, so I do think that they're probably important for augmenting fiber type recruitment, you know, you know, fatiguing the muscle, but, um, being anabolic, by themselves, I just I'm not sure. I think we have some evidence that suggests that's probably not the case. Um, the other one is the swelling response. Um, you know, if uh, uh, you know when you when you apply blood flow restriction and you exercise, you get a swelling response. And we have some data that suggests that when a muscle was able to swell more um, than another condition, that it actually produced greater growth. Right. Mm-hmm. That's. Yeah, that's quite retrospective um, correlation. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean cause and effect. And I think it, it could still be important that the swelling, the hydration of the muscle, the, that that fluid shift could be very important. Um, but by itself, I, if we just had a muscle swell, I don't know that that would be really doing anything that beneficial. Um, so I think the as far as with respect to increasing muscle size, I do think the metabolites may be inducing fatigue and all that, but metabolites being anabolic by themselves. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that that's, um, has any evidence behind it. And we, we tried to study that. Uh, one of my students, Scott Dankel did a master's thesis where we tried to augment high load training, um, by pulling metabolites post exercise. Um, cause that's, that would be a way you could separate yeah, it. Yeah. Obviously, the metabolite metabolic accumulation was inferred from just fatigue from a, a different protocol, but um, we weren't able to actually measure the metabolites. But um, anyway, it didn't. It certainly didn't augment it um, over what you would expect now uh, from high low training. But so uh, my my think my 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 thoughts are changing on the metabolite thing for sure. Cool. So one side question. We'll wrap up here. I've often wondered if the sort of the pump or the swelling, that type of thing, have you seen any data that that's beneficial for soft tissue? Um, like connective tissue, fascia, things of that nature? I haven't seen anything, but my my gut feeling is that usually people I know anecdotally do more of that type of work. And granted, it's because you're changing the stress profile in the joints possibly too, but um, they seem to report that their joints feel better. I've often wondered about how avascular soft tissue is and that type of thing. I yeah. don't know if there's any literature on that. I, I can't seem to find anything either way. So, To be honest with you, I, I really don't know. Um, but 
you know, I, I think the, <laughs> you know, we, we wrote that paper on the, we hypothesized about the self-smelling thing uh, several years ago. And I, I still think it could be important again. I mean, don't, I don't want to say it's not, uh, but by itself, I don't think it is, at least for skeletal muscle. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of those things that all, everything kind of lines up. Like you think it, you think it would work and then you get some evidence that, you know, we published a paper in plus one that seemed to suggest that it would work, but there were, there were more things different between those controls, those conditions than just the cells flowing. Mm. Um, but so it's one of those things that we could, we run into, a, or we, we could run into that, you know, that's the same thing that happened with the hormones just because something was changing doesn't mean it right. was actually um, and I think Stu Phillips lab and several other labs have shown that obviously repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's one of the other studies I, I read was Nick Bird's study using a 30% of one RM with yeah. leg work years ago. And I was like, Oh, what the heck? <laughs> no, it's, it's cool because I think that there's, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because for the past 20 years or so, we've, we've pretty much shown that low loads um, can produce adaptations similar to high load training, you know, especially with muscle growth, you know, strength is very dependent upon the task. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you bring up a good point. So, uh, 30% of your one RM, even without blood flow restriction has been shown to be beneficial. Um, and we've, we've shown it to be, when we, when we compared them head to head, they produced pretty much the same adaptation. Uh, the, the one difference was, um, that the blood flow restriction group did a less total volume of work. So they were able to do less mechanical work on the joint. Uh, that might be beneficial. Um, but one of the things that we've been interested in is going well below that. So well below 30%, because I think you're going to reach a point um, where the the load is low enough to where if you don't have blood flow restriction, um, you're not going to be able to actually fatigue the muscle right. at an appropriate rate. So that's where blood flow restriction might be um, even more beneficial than just going to fatigue, because I think there's going to come a point where you can't go to fatigue. And there is some... And there is some data showing that, you know, they're depending on the depending on the training status of the individual. Um, there's there's studies showing that walking at slow speeds I was can ask you do, about that. Yeah. Can do some level of growth. Now, if you're if you're very well trained, you know, <laughs> you know, it's probably not going to do a whole lot. It can make, maybe maintain it. But the point the, the point still stands that you would probably not be able to walk to failure at 1.8 miles per hour. But you, you could apply blood flow restriction and see some growth in certain populations. So it tells me that you know 30% is enough to cause some restriction of blood flow on itself when you're contracting the muscle, um, that if you go below that, there might be uh, even greater utility of the blood flow restriction. But certainly at 30%, you can still see the similar adaptations, but with a lot less work. Cool, very interesting. And I know I've talked to Stu about this before, and Dr. Stu Phillips has been on the podcast here talking about protein stuff, but um, his assertion was that it's the fatigue that seems to be the driving factor, kind of sort of independent of the load. The load's just one way to get to that endpoint. Yeah, I agree. You know, we, you know, uh, one of my other students, her thesis was just contracting the muscle, you know, so not even having a load. Um, so the, you know, obviously the muscle is working extremely hard, but the point is, is that the external load is not anything special. Um, and, you know, it's been repeatedly demonstrated that muscle growth is independent of the load for sure. Yeah. We'll have to have you back again to talk some more about different myths and fatigue and size versus hypertrophy and all that fun stuff too. Cause I know you guys have put out some very interesting studies on that and even questioning periodization and, and different topics too, which is very fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I think like I, like I said before we, we went live, you know, I, I feel very lucky here. You know, my, the, the, the lab that I have, you know, right now I have five PhD students and they're all like really great, really, really great thinkers. Um, so it's, it really, it really kind of helps, you know, cause we can sit around and just kind of, uh, blue sky ideas, yeah. you know, pretty much, pretty much every day. And, you know, if you can get people who, if you can get people who can work really, really hard, who can think and have some original ideas and who are not afraid to be wrong, um, 
you can do a lot of good things. And I, I've, I've been very, very, very lucky here so far to, to ha be able to get students who can do all those things. Um, so, you know, it's, I think that we have a lot of things uh, that we're currently working on that might be of um, potential interest and use usefulness to the industry um, in the, over the next few months. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's, that's super cool. So if you were to give someone listening, they only caught the last 60 seconds, what would you tell them about blood flow restriction and they want to use it in their training? How would you recommend they do that? Um, yeah, I think blood flow restriction, again, I think it's important to keep in mind that we're only restricting blood flow, so we're not cutting it off completely. We're restricting it for a short amount of time, um, for minutes, not hours. Um, you could do it whenever you know you're, you're you're having a bad day, you're injured, or you could program it to where you have a normal day one day and a light day with blood flow restriction another day. Um, and you can use it on uh, most muscle movements. Again, the upper body is largely hypothetical. There's a lot of good data on the biceps and triceps. Um, there's some evidence on the chest, but you know if you again you're restricting blood flow only at the top of each arm and the top of each leg, um, and you know, the sets and reps, you know, we usually shoot for around three to four sets. You know, uh, I would use it, if you're using practical blood flow restriction, I would use it as a guide. Um, to, to The goal of repetitions would be 30, 15, 15, 15. Uh, fully understanding that there's nothing special about that. You know, the key is to be fatiguing the muscle. Um, but I think having some goal repetitions can help you at least dictate how, how much restriction you actually have to the muscle. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. No, that's awesome. That's very useful. And there's nothing, and there's nothing special uh, about blood flow shooting per se, meaning, you know, it's not going to cause greater adaptations than high load training. But again, I don't know why anyone would expect that to be the case. It's going to produce similar responses. Cool. Well, thank you very much for that. We wanted to have you on. So we had a few questions come up about that. And I always like going to the source and obviously we've done a lot of studies on this and put a lot of thought into it over the last uh, it's going on about 10 plus years at least now so yeah doing it for a while yeah and where can people find more about you i know you've got some some epic stuff on twitter once in a while there yeah the the best place <laughs> is probably um twitter you know at uh jp l-o-e and then eke so at jp Lenicky. um that's really the best place to interact with me um and, you know, people, I don't really respond to Facebook messages, but I, I do respond to, to Twitter pretty much daily. Um, if, there, if there's any students who might be interested in coming to work with us, you know, you can yeah. find my email um, on Ole Miss's website um, on our health, exercise, science, recreation, management. That's our department. You can find my information there. But if they just want to interact, then Twitter is probably the best place. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, this will be, I think, very useful and people will have a good representation of what it can be used for and what it may not be used for, which I think is makes it the most practical and useful then too. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.